All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Specky birthday. We need to talk about Wordle. The best mouse ever gets even better. A panther or a pussycat, the mysterious Atari console. All this and more coming up on the show in This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. So how's your week been then this week, Chris? What have you been up to, mate? Yeah, not bad, actually. I've actually, um, it it seems like an odd luxury these days, Neil, but uh, I've actually had time to sit down and actually play some games. (laughs) Would you believe? Oh, that's a first. (laughs) You know that thing we profess to be into? (laughs) (laughs) What have you been playing? Yeah, just... So just hanging out on the A1200, basically, which did come with a fully loaded hard drive. So I can just randomly see what's on the hard drive every now and again. So I tend to jump into things like Banshee and Hybris and stuff like that just to see, uh, just to have, make sure I have a good time. Games I know are going to be good. Um, but yesterday I found one called T-Force. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I think no, it's an AGA about? game. It looked really impressive at the intro and then it crashed before the actual game loaded. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay. other than that a few yeah a few, few fighting games and then jumping into the ps4 um obviously to play some modern games like gods and quake oh okay so, it, um, I, I take it that's this new the new it's not so new anymore but the quake with the rtx mode and all of that business or is it an older yeah version? that's right yeah yeah how are you finding yeah, it so i just yeah it's fine it's it's a weird one i actually found it hard to get back into when i first loaded it up and um, it was instantly reminded of all the things I don't like about Quake. Like, actually, it's quite a uncomfortable game to play, you know, quite grungy and gritty. And the sound effects, are, you know, I guess that's to its, its benefit. But I guess I'm, I'm just, I don't know, I'm not into that kind of stuff anymore. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. but I got past that and then just got back into the let's run around the corners with a grenade launcher and try and kill everything except ourselves. I so, find with Quake, yeah. it's um, it's a reminder of just how far we've come in that genre, in that first-person shooter genre. If you jump, though, you only need to go one step to Quake 2, and that just mm. feels as fresh as the day it came out. Quake 2 is a stunning game to this day. Yeah. Um, you can have great death matches with it. But Quake, the original Quake... Even with the fancy graphics, it does still feel a bit um, first generation, should we say? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I've got Quake Two disc sitting on the shelf for the PC, but I just haven't got around to installing it on the on my Windows ninety eight rig yet. So mm-hmm. that'll certainly come up soon. Yeah, cool. What about what about yourself? Well, um, this last week I've mostly been playing with this thing, and for those on audio only, I'm holding up what looks like a a regular ZX Spectrum one one two eight. No, a ZX Spectrum Plus. Sorry. Um, the one before the toast rack and uh, the difference is it's got a different label at the top right which makes it look like some kind of dodgy clone but this is actually an officially licensed zx spectrum that was only sold in the indian market Um, (laughs) it arrived non-working and completely filthy so i've I've put together an episode on getting this thing back up and running and uh, a classic we haven't seen one on the rmc channel for a while a classic sort of slow motion soapy suds uh cleaning montage you know the black gloves are on <laughs> the cleaning tools are out so hopefully people are going to enjoy that and uh i was really pleased to get it working um because it does seem like an odd little bit of history i've not come across that one before so um yeah i've been taking a nice. trip to india and speaking yeah. of speckies i think your first story is spectrum related so why don't you start us off with our first story chris at the beginning of the year, we discussed uh, the C64, which apparently is a good machine, and we kind of celebrated the fact that it is now 40 years old, Neil. 
apparently that's a big deal. Um, but I've got a bigger celebration this week, Neil, thanks to Al Brabrino on the subreddit, who shared this wonderful story on nme.com by Graham Mason. Graham, the fine fellow that he must be, wrote this wonderful piece about the ZX Spectrum because, yes, you guessed it, it is also 40 years old this year. And that, in my personal opinion, is a far more worthy celebration, Neil. You're going to upset um, some people, Chris. You're going to upset some I people. Know, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm sure we'll redeem ourselves maybe in a future episode. Um, the article uh, pleasantly discusses the impact uh, the low-cost British micro had on the gaming industry to date, those who attribute their IT careers to the machine, and many of the other topics we typically associate with our favorite machines from that pioneering era. He has also, um, he has people like former editor of Retro Gamer magazine, Martin Carroll, weigh in, in the in, onto the conversation, as well as a variety of others. Uh, we're treading dangerous ground here, Neil, so maybe you can balance things out. <laughs> C64 or ZX Spectrum? Oh, yeah, just, you know, pull the pin out that grenade and throw it at me, Chris. Um, I don't <laughs> think we're about to settle any scores that have been raging on for 40 years today. It's just not going to happen, but... I'd like to think that over the years, each machine has been recognized and appreciated for its strengths and, you know, not just scolded for, for its weaknesses because they both do have them. I think they've both proven themselves. Um, but we should remind ourselves really a little bit of history on the ZX Spectrum. Uh, 1982, it came out obviously 40 years ago, uh, originally at about £125, um, but it did quickly come down to £99. So... When you think about it, that is an absolutely ludicrous price. I know it was always Sinclair's aim to keep it below £100, uh, the cost of his low-cost computing. But to have achieved it with something like the ZX Spectrum, £99. It's just insane that you could that you could go out and buy that thing. Unlike the C64, it was completely lacking any custom chips, which were designed specifically to help with things like gaming. You know, it didn't have a hardware sprite assistance or hardware scrolling or anything like that. It did have this thing called a ULA, which had uh, been developed for the previous computer, the ZX81. And the incredible thing about that was it consolidated all of these chips to help further reduce the cost and the complexity of it. And the ZX81 before it was a microcomputer with really just four main chips. Um, compare that to the competitor, say the TRS-80, you're looking at more than 40 chips to perform the equivalent stuff. Um, and that, that, uh, evolved and, um, made its way into the ZX Spectrum as well. The ZX Spectrum, which was going to be the ZX-82, uh, but it was renamed the Spectrum because it had that, uh, the, the introduction of color. Those before it in the Sinclair range were black and white. So... A good choice of name, a good choice of case. It had that lovely Rick Dickinson-styled uh, case by the industrial designer, um, who sadly left us a few years ago. Um, and it, it's an iconic-looking thing. Um, I know the first thing a lot of people think of with the ZX Spectrum is that dead flesh keyboard, but it still has a certain charm to it, and it has a, a very distinctive look. For £99, or even for £125, it did absolutely everything that it promised to do for its price, I think. It wasn't trying to be a cheap C64. It wasn't designed as a games machine from the off. It was supposed to be a cheap general purpose entry into computing. But the price did make it perfect for parents to test the water with their kids and see if they might get anything out of um, computing without breaking the bank. So um, a huge games market followed, unsurprisingly. <laughs> And uh, it's in those games that you see something really amazing happen for the ZX Spectrum. You see developers 
coming up with every single trick in the book or inventing new tricks. The, the, the book hasn't even been written at this point. They're writing the book with these new tri tricks to produce games without hardware scrolling, without that sprite assistance, with a beeper for the music and not something <laughs> fancy like the SID chip in the C64. It was amazing what people could get out of that little speaker. And of course, it had the, the, the famous color clash visuals of the ZX Spectrum that it's so known for. So honestly, I don't think it's a Spectrum versus C64 thing anymore. I think both systems have proven themselves. It's it's like the heavyweight boxing match is over. It was over a long time ago. Um, and, and what you've got now is the two fighters hugging at the end of the 12th round, you know, with, with an awful <laughs> amount of respect for each other, I would hope. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? Yeah, no, you, you're right. And I've certainly now got a greater appreciation of the C64. That's definitely fair to say, especially living in Australia and having exposure to it through the retro computing groups. Um, I'm becoming to uh, appreciate it, let's put it that way, the more I have a look at it. But we're not here to celebrate the C64 today, Neil, but here to discuss the spectrum. Um, so... I definitely always wanted one. I think I, I shared that in um, the first episode I, jo I joined you on, um, how I always wanted a ZX Spectrum, the 48K with those oh, rubber keys. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, got the plus three in the end, that's didn't what you? Yeah, so I got the plus three. But it's it's only in 20, 2022, in prop time, that I actually have one kind of given to me, this one actually, very quite recently. Um, and just really enjoy, you know, again, it's all about the memories. And if I crank that up and, and play on it, I try and play the games that I would have played at my mate's house that had those like Paperboy, Saboteur, that kind of thing. Um, but even though I had the plus three, the amount of games in my collection that were 48K games anyway um, really does sort of demonstrate how capable even just the 48K Spectrum was. Um, so, yeah, yeah it always wasn't... had one. I, it wasn't quite catering to the lowest common denominator, but nearly because obviously there was the 16K spectrum originally, but that just, just wasn't quite mm. enough. So soon 48K became the standard. And then 128K was not uncommon in the, in the later machines, but still they had to cater to the 48K because if you wanted to sell a decent number of, um, <laughs> of games, you would, you would aim for that market, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And speaking of the ZX81, I think I only ever saw one zx81 that's my memory anyway yeah. and, and all i remember was that i don't even it was my parents visiting probably some of their friends and they happened to have a child in the house who had this zx81 and all i remember of the trip was going into this upstairs room the kid had a zx81 we sat there for the entire visit typing in a game that failed and then it was time to go home so there would have been a syntax error or something, you know, hidden away somewhere. And that was the entire trip. And that's my only ZX81 memory. So there you go. But yeah. Did, did he become I mean, your friend? I, love... I mean, did, was the Z, did the ZX81 meet the bar of entry to become Chris's friend? Or did you look no, down your nose at him? No, I, I, <laughs> I, it, was, it was a distance visit. So I don't think it was somebody that we saw regularly. It's a really obscure, blurred memory. But yeah, that's my only memory of it. Um, but definitely, I mean, that period, a, a lot a lot of the decisions about what computer we bought was based on not only the friends that we had and what they had. And again, my friends had the, the, the ZX Spectrum. Um, but um, what games we saw in the shop on the shelf. So I had an Electron at that time, even though I wanted the 48K Spectrum. But you go into WH Smith, you go into Boots, and you'd be, you know, half a shelf, if that, for the Acorn Electron, and just shelves and shelves of shell and shelves, it would seem. Um, that's how my memory tells it anyway, of 
spectrum games they were just everywhere um so yeah that was definitely the one to lust after what about yourself yeah. neil yeah yeah i've got the same memories actually um and it's very well reflected in the recreated retro shop that i've got here based on the number of games and the systems that have been donated over the years it just so happens that i have a much bigger spread of zx spectrum games and then c64 mm. games and then amstrad cpc games in, in a descending number so when you go into the recreated shop it is dominated in that tape section by the ZX Spectrum. And that's exactly how I remember it. And what I've done Same. in there, I've got a top shelf, which just says other micros. And that's where your Electron games go and your BBC Micro games <laughs> and your Dragon 32 games, because that's how it was. Even as an Amstrad yeah. CPC owner back in the day, I was envious of just the, the breadth of selection of titles that the ZX Spectrum owners had. I wasn't short of a choice as an Amstrad owner. But the ZX Spectrum yeah. just had everyone, you know, everyone beaten for the number of uh, budget games, especially available. Um, you know, there was a huge budget market for a budget computer. Um, and just like you, everyone seemed to have a ZX Spectrum. I can't think of a, a system before the PC ownership era, you know, before it became just the standard to have a PC uh, where everyone had a similar machine. And, and the ZX Spectrum was that time. Um and games we used to play uh, often laying on the carpet because that's exactly where a ZX Spectrum should be, sat on the carpet underneath the television, getting far too hot. Um, I used to play, um, I remember playing Nightmare, which was hmm. based on the TV show Nightmare. So it's kind of like this side view and you had to, pretty much every room was a puzzle that you had to figure out how to get out of. And the guy had the, the helmet. I think the helmet had a name, didn't it, with the horns on it in Nightmare? Oh, anyway, yeah, it did, yeah. You were that guy. Um, I really enjoyed Last Ninja 2, which I thought was a, quite a tour de force in showing what the Spectrum could do. It's like an isometric ninja-based adventure game most people will know of. School Days, absolute classic mm -hmm. sort of school puzzler. And as a school kid of the time, it was, a, it was a game that you could relate to so well. I mean, I wanted to be a ninja, but I was a school kid and, and so school days, you know, <laughs> you got to go and annoy your teachers in a way that I wouldn't dare at school. And, mm -hmm. um, and Short Circuit as well, which was the first Spectrum game I played on a disc and the first time, it might have even been the first game outside of school on the BBC Micro, which were more edutainment titles. So the first game game mm. that I saw load from disc um, on a plus three and was just stunned by how quick a game could load. It wasn't a particularly great game. Um, but again, no. it, it, you know what it's like <laughs> with movie tie-ins, you kind of, you, you make an exception and you make excuses because it's the movie, because it's got Johnny five yes. in it and, and you try and, <laughs> you know, you try and make it a good game, even if it's not really there. Um, yeah. but yeah, I would say that the ZX Spectrum really does have a style of his own. Nothing quite plays the same, even in, in emulation, you can get across the charm and the style that the ZX Spectrum has. Um, there are other mm. machines that have color clash, you know, I know some of the MSXs do and things like that, but, um, maybe it's the color palette and the, and the color clash together. Cause you've got these really mm. vibrant colors on the ZX Spectrum, neon colors almost. Maybe that's what gives it its style all of its own, Chris yeah no no definitely yeah and that color clash towards the end of the spectrum's life some of the developers um savage is the game that always springs to mind as an example of a game um which sideways scrolling sort of platform ish kind of game i don't know if you played savage but they no, by that point they'd really sort of mastered the art of making the most of color clash if that makes sense trying to you know develop their way around it um so 
yeah, there were certainly developers that, that managed to sort of make the most of the spectrum and almost make Color Clash disappear. In terms of games that really stand out for me from that period and, and trying to think predominantly about the, the 48K, A Tick Attack, Paperboy, Saboteur, Lotus Esprit Turbo. So I'm talking not the Gremlin version, which also came out on, on the ZX Spectrum as well, uh, but the Jarell game. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, Neil, but it was almost like merge gta with chase hq but way 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 before their time it was a fantastic game well worth looking up it looks really weird and simple when you first get into it but then you realize you've basically got this free roaming city that you can take any corner that you want and you have to find out where the enemy cars are using the map and take the right turns around the corner, try and not run over pedestrians at traffic lights and that kind of thing. Fantastic game for the time. Yeah, I think it is considered to be one of the first open world games out there. Yeah, um, yeah love yeah, it to bits. Great. That was actually a bargain just... bin purchase, I remember. Um, and I didn't oh, nice. even know what I was buying. Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. just step in uh, on the uh, large sprites that you were talking about because it's just come into my head. That, um, Don Priestley was the developer that was very, very good at that. Um, ah. An example of that was Popeye. I don't know if you ever played that on no. the ZX Spectrum. Huge, huge sprites, um, right. all nicely colored in. So, uh, yeah, look at, look up uh, uh, some of the Don Priestley games to see some really good examples of that. Anyway, oh, carry okay, on. Cool. I remember Trapdoor as well. That was very large sprites. Yeah, very similar. Yeah, good yeah. mastery of Trapdoor, uh, of the colors, sorry. Yep, Overlander, great memories of that. Gauntlet, um, Yi'ar Kung Fu. So I'm glad you mentioned Short Circuit because my memories of Yi'ar Kung Fu were from the Plus 3 Chartbusters disc that came with my Plus 3 originally, uh, which for those of you watching on YouTube, I'm holding here. Um, but the weird thing is, even though you got this with a Plus 3, the version of Yi'ar Kung Fu, so that they could fit six games on the disc, is the 48k version so they've sold you a plus three they've given you some packing games and they've given you a 48k version of the game that has a better <laughs> one to 8k version but anyway fantastic beat em up i love it but all but on the flip side of this is where you've got green beret you've got cobra but you've also got short circuit so i also remember loading this off disc very very well fantastic loading time terrible terrible game Great escapes on here as well, which is fantastic. That's uh, iconic. Even if you don't like the game, just the cover art on that is just iconic. The Great Escape. But there's that whole yeah. period of cover art that, that are across ZX Spectrum games that are just fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, love that. Great Escape, incidentally, is the first ever ZX Spectrum game I played emulated. It was on ah. an Acorn Archimedes and uh, happened to be in school and it had a ZX Spectrum emulator on it and someone had smuggled the Great Escape in there. So that's that's what we used to play. So you were um, retro gaming even back then? Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> um, yeah. And and Trapdoor, by the way, that was Don Priestley as well. So the, exactly right. the same kind of sprites that you played in that are, are the same in Popeye. Um, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we could talk all day about the ZX Spectrum, couldn't we? There, there are so many facets to talk about. It's such a great <laughs> yes. machine. Yeah, definitely. Um, I will throw one last one in, Neil, and then uh, yeah, we'll wrap this up. But Driller and the other Freescape games that accompany it, I mean, that really showed off. Again, these load on 48K and, you know, you got full 3D, filled polygon, not the fastest frame rate. I will acknowledge that. But, you know, they were great. They were fantastic. You say that, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was slightly quicker on the ZX Spectrum than the C64 because that Z80 could do the, the 3D calculations a little bit quicker than there the, what, what was it, a 1 megahertz 6502 on the C64? Yeah. So... Um, the specy had the upper hand there. That might oh. be a good positive note to end on. 
Yeah, definitely. So anyway, please do visit the article by Graham Mason. It's a great nostalgia trip, trip as well as being very informative. The ZX isn't officially 40 until the 23rd of April, so we won't jetpack after the party just yet, but it's coming. Chris, let's talk about games you may or may not have played. I always like this game. Um, Wordle, have you been caught up in the Wordle craze? No. No, no, Neil, I haven't. You're on a quest to only talk about things I have zero engagement with, aren't you, Neil? Um, no, other than seeing people post what look to me like Tetris screenshots in your Discord, I have no exposure to Wordle whatsoever. Oh, you should give it a go. It's nothing like Tetris, nothing like Tetris at all. It's a fun little puzzle game. Um, I have to say I am completely hooked on it. It's the first thing I do every morning is is Wordle. It, I know some people like Sudoku and some people like their crosswords in the paper. Uh, Wordle has become the thing I like to start my day with over breakfast. Very simple game. There's a word. It's five letters long. You have to guess it. And um, each time you take a guess, it will tell you if you've got letters correct if those letters are in the right place or in the wrong place. And then over, what is it, five or six guesses, I think you get, you have to you have to guess the word. It's a bit like that old game Mastermind. Do you remember the, the tabletop game with the pegs? Yeah, with, with the pegs, guess, yeah. A colored peg would be put in if you got the right, you know, number in the combination in the right place or however it worked. It's been a long time since I played it. It reminds me of that, very similar. The craze has taken the world by storm. And the creator, even though I don't think that this is a particularly original game, has sold it for a six-figure sum, undisclosed amount, to uh, the New York Times. So he's done well out of it. Uh, and what we've seen is people sharing their results because as soon as you guess the word, there's this share button and it will copy into your clipboard and then you paste it on social media. You must have seen people posting their results, their scores on social media. Have you ever played Twitter, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> No, I've not seen. All I've seen is the silly screenshots with just the blocks. That's all. I've that's seen. it. That's it. That's what yeah, people yeah. share. The blocks. Oh, so, so that's when you the results. Copy, is it? Is that the result? That's the result. So if you see five green, then they've got the word. And and I've, oh, people are starting okay. to get angry now. People, so many people are sharing this stuff that people are starting to get angry about seeing it. And, and I, it's quite right too. You don't want to log onto social media and just see a wall of word or results. So what I've had to do over on my Discord, even though I'm as guilty as everyone as sharing this stuff, is create a word or room where people just go in to post their results to keep it away from the rest <laughs> of the chat. <laughs> That's the but, room um, you'll never again enter, Neil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But anyway, why am I telling you all this? Because the nice thing about Wordle is that it's the simplicity of the game makes it really adaptable to any any platform, new or retro. And and the popularity of it, the obvious popularity of it, is driving people to port it to lots of platforms. Uh, I would make a very similar uh, comparison to Flappy Bird. You know, a very very simple game that we suddenly saw ported to absolutely everything because everyone wanted to play it. Chris, have you played no. Flappy Bird? No. <laughs> Let's no. move on. I've played Angry Birds. <laughs> I've not played Flappy Bird. No <laughs> idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so um God, you need to you need a notepad with you. You need to start writing all the games you need to play down. <laughs> How long have or I got not, to live, yeah. Neil? I'm, I'm really not recommending time left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not recommending Flappy Bird. It's a very simple game, but um <laughs> What we've seen now is Wordle being ported from everything, from the, the C64, there's a Palm Pilot version, I think there's like an old Windows Mobile version. Um, 
it, it's everywhere and, and why not why not it's a fun programming challenge for people you know simple to understand simple to play and and the story about wordle that was submitted to us i read it this week by a listener kefka floyd it's about windle and this is a windows 3.1 port created in delphi one using a real 486 dx266 pc and you can find it on dialup.net forward slash window. And um, whether you like Word or not, it's worth checking out this uh, this website because the creation process behind it, it, it's really quite enjoyable to read about. Correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Delphi just Visual Pascal? I think it was. You tell me, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember I learned Pascal and I'm pretty sure that what Delphi came along and it was... Um, a bit like Visual Basic was, I think Visual Basic came afterwards, where you okay. could drag and drop the GUI elements and then, you know, drop in and do the code behind it. And in the in the um, instance of Delphi, it was Pascal was the code that sat behind it. Anyway, the developer of this has got a really nice blog post describing his experience of dipping back into retro programming on vintage hardware. Did you hear me there? Retro programming on vintage hardware. I'm getting the hang of the use of retro and vintage i think i've got that right there very and good. and he includes he includes a statement which might sound obvious when you say it out loud but it's understandable he says he kind of forgot just how slow a dx266 would be and he had to rethink his approach <laughs> because sitting behind wordle is uh is a dictionary of words and because you can only guess words that are real. You can't just make up words. So he had to rethink his approach, uh, the ability for the DX266 to load, or in this case, not load an entire dictionary into memory right. um, and work around problems like that. Uh, and the speed of lookup for words and things like that. So it's well worth a read. And the result of this is a classic Windows 3 looking application, which does what it promises. It plays Wordle. Now, when I saw it, Chris, I was immediately reminded of a lot of Windows games that I used to waste my time on. Um, <laughs> you know, you'd waste your time on these little games in Windows and then you would drop back into DOS, and I'm going to say this in quotes, to play proper games. You know, that's where the real gaming would happen in DOS. But when I think about the amount of time I actually spent on games like Minesweeper and Solitaire, it was probably a lot more than some of those proper games. I was quite hooked on those. So um, do you have any fond memories of, of game memories in Windows, but in that period before DirectX and before machines had enough resources to launch games, despite Windows being underneath. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and they were quite limited. I remember that. So Solitaire, definitely. I mean, it would be a game you think, oh, I'll just have a quick game of Solitaire. And then, but the, the first round wouldn't go to your liking. So then you have another round and then another round. And then until you complete it, then you go, well, that's fun. And then it loads the next deck and you play it again. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. But- yeah. Um, what was your choice speaker. of um what was your choice of card deck because you could change the the back of the cards yeah there was a dark one wasn't there with a castle kind of like a silhouetted yes. castle yeah yeah anything dark and murky <laughs> like that yeah that. but then i don't know it's a weird thing it's that maybe it's the purest thing that still comes out when we're talking about retro computers but i change things and then i'll use that for a couple of rounds and i'll go no i, I need to change it back to default everything must be default <laughs> yeah i know what so, you mean i know what you mean yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's weird, like desktop it? background colors and you know yeah. um using an amiga i really love the the workbench 1.3 colors it yeah. feels a bit weird when it when, when we go to the newer ones which are completely historically accurate it's just that i had 1.3 back in the day so i like the blues and the oranges yes. and the weirdness 
Yeah, I do exactly the same in the workbench. I change the color scheme with a black background and reds and whites and something bizarre like that. Use it for 10 minutes and then go, no, must change to default. <laughs> change yeah. it all back. And again. I still I still very rarely actually have a, a background on my modern computer. I just have a plain color. And yeah. I think that is... I think that harks back to the days when I used to support people's computers. And one of the best things you could do to speed up their computer was remove the two meg desktop image that they'd applied on a machine with four megabytes of memory. Oh, how far we've come, how far we've come now. Now we, now, now we have three separate pictures if you've got three screens. But anyway, back to Windows <laughs> games. So definitely time wasted in solitaire, just changing the back of the cards back to default. Um, Minesweeper, absolutely. Um, wasn't a huge fan of Minesweeper, but again, you just find yourself getting sucked in. And then, now these games, they actually came on a CD that came with my first Pentium, but they were definitely games that would have run in Windows 3.1. They were not, you know, um, uh, up-to-date games at all. So you might, you've probably never heard of these. Well, many might, might, might have done, but Rats, have you ever heard of Rats? No, no. There's what, Rats running rats? around in a maze, Neil, and... You don't want them to run around in the maze and you certainly don't want them to find each other because if a boy rat and a girl rat finds each other, they make funny noises and then they multiply (laughs) and you have to stop the rats multiplying. This was a packing game with my Pentium. (laughs) How do you stop them? Um, You can put uh, rat poison, like gas down. You can put bombs down. So a bit like Bomberman mechanic with the bot bombs that explode in four directions depending on what walls are near you and that kind of thing um, and you can put blocks down to stop them being able to run down certain corridors bizarre games so anyway yes rats and another one called slay that my wife and i actually got into on that same disc which is a sort of like a not a command and conquer nothing nothing that you know grand um but that sort of strategy you know taking um land from your enemy one one grid piece at a time type game Mm -hmm. you had to set up castles and then there was different classes of people but very simplified very simplified so that was definitely a windows 3.1 level game but uh, one from and i think it came with windows 3.11 but hearts do you remember hearts yeah, Hearts was the one that I never really played. I never really quite understood how to play it, but it was always there. No, you were say once you understood it, you would forget Solitaire and you would play that nonstop. So I worked in where I learned to play it was I worked in this warehouse for a while uh, back in England. Um, and the the warehouse manager, lovely big guy um sort of guy that you could imagine sitting around on a forklift all day because that's what he did. Um, but every <laughs> coffee break and every lunchtime all we did was sit there there was three of us and we'd play hearts while we ate our lunch or drunk our hot chocolate or whatever and just round after round after round of hearts crazy crazy game so it's actually a four-player game but the other three players are are the computer and you end up hating the other names on the screen even though they don't even exist (laughs) they're not real people because they're they're stealing all the wrong cards they're holding them in their hand and you know they've got they've got them and we're swearing at one particular player saying i know she's got them just pass me those damn cards crazy game really good game actually really good game yeah a silly one that i used to like playing was uh one called indiana jones and his desktop adventures do you did you ever come across that one or there was also a star wars one later which is like yoda's desktop adventures this was a fun little game, um, obviously fun because it contained these, uh, you know, these movie characters, so you could recognize them. But it was it was made to be played in about thirty minutes, so a quick one on your lunch break, and it auto generated the map and the 
and the goals each time. So it was a slightly different game each time. So that was a lot of fun. Came out in 96, but it did run on 3.1. You had that crossover period of 95 and 3.1. And um, I always liken this period of games on on Windows, especially Windows 3.1 for some reason, as being kind of like the equivalent of an executive desk toy, you know, like the clacking balls that you would have on your desk. Uh, more often than not there's not really a purpose to it it's just kind of a nice thing to look at and distract you for a few minutes but some of them were a bit deeper than that um you know it's like a distraction for a successful business owner who who knew they were successful because they actually had time to sit down and play these games or in your case hearts on your lunch break um <laughs> you know <laughs> Or, or, or people were just neglecting their responsibilities. I don't know. And for some reason, I kind of lump into that same category golf games of a certain period, golf games like Lynx 386 Pro. You mm. know, whenever I play Lynx 386 Pro, I feel like I should have a business suit on to play it. It's a, it's a, it's hard to explain. Does it make any sense to you, Chris? <laughs> no, yeah, it does. I mean, I th- you're definitely on the money there. Um, the machines, which I think you alluded to at the beginning of this piece, the machines had limited power and limited RAM back then, and, and Windows was hogging most of it. So there wasn't much left to play a decent game anyway. But if you're at work, well, you had to stay in Windows. It's not like you drop out to DOS and play Doom, Well, you might try. Some of us did. Um, but I remember, I don't know why this, this reminds me of this, but I remember when I was an IT administrator, which was in around the Windows 95 period, um and uh, it was it was definitely true of windows 3.1 uh, as well though was custom screensavers i mean they they are in that same niche to me as complete waste of time people would just wait for their machine to you know go into sleep so that they could watch the screensaver that they'd installed because we hadn't managed to lock out that feature shouldn't have even <laughs> been there on their machine because it's a work machine and generally it would then cause the machine to lock up goodness knows where they were getting these mach- these uh, screensavers from and as a result they would call the it help desk which was me and i'd have to run over there and turn it off and on again because that's all we did back then <laughs> such a, it's, a, it's such an innocent time isn't it in terms of security yeah, a screensaver on a windows machine was effectively just an executable that would automatically run after a set period of time of inactivity hmm. so, so when you say it out loud now it's such a dangerous thing yeah and it would run with administrative privileges i'm guessing you hadn't got things locked down at that point you know, That's right. there was no active directory there. There was very little security there. Um, so yeah, it's pretty mad when you think about a bit like that. But also I do remember the excitement of something as simple as a screensaver, mm. whether it was the 3d pipes or, you know, the, the one with text where you could type it in and make it appear. Or yeah, if you were, if you're really cool, you'd bring in your own, you'd get um, Johnny Castaway or the flying toasters, the uh, after dark screensavers or something like that. Uh, yeah, did you see LGR unearthed one recently on a video? Um, I think it was a was oh, it the Lockheed General Martin Electric? one. Was it Lockheed Lockheed Martin, Martin one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was fantastic. I want that for for a certain generation. That's really exciting. Oh, there's a screensaver we haven't seen before because you think you've seen them all. I don't mm. know why screensavers are exciting. Anyway, sorry. Where were we? We've got onto screensavers from Windows Wordle. games. Um, it's all my fault. Windows <laughs> games. <laughs> yeah, so um, just coming back around, if you are a Wordle fan, you can now play it on Windows 3.1 using Windle. I'm definitely going to put it on one of the exhibition machines here because it's something people recognize 
on a piece of old hardware that they might not recognize. So it, it will make it accessible and it will, if they see it on the screen, it will encourage them to step up and go, well, I recognize Wordle, so I'm going to play this. And before you know it, they're playing on an old system and seeing what it's capable of. So I'm definitely going to put it on here for a giggle. If you want to give it a go, um, all the links are in the show notes for this, as with all the other stories. So you go and have a hunt around and try it out. This next story comes from Chrissy Baps in the subreddit, but really it comes from absolutely everywhere. I mean, I swear the BBC and CNN are going to pick this one up at some point as it's everywhere else. Um, I am, of course, talking about the Kickstart campaign from Lucas Remus, the wireless Amiga tank mouse. Now, nostalgia glasses are indeed very rose-tinted, Neil, uh, uh, but I do have a huge soft spot for the original Amiga Tank Mouse. It's the only mouse I ever want to have plugged into my Amiga 500 that's sitting on the desk right beside me right now. Um, it's big, it has huge buttons. In fact, if I don't destroy everything, I have one with oh, you've got one right there. now. So it's, it's huge, it has weight to it. Uh, it has the huge buttons at the top. It has balls, I mean, it has a ball. Um, I just I just love it to bits. Um, and when the reason you, I love uh, it is obviously- you... When did you last clean your ball, Chris? Do you know what? This one actually didn't need cleaning. This truly was an Amiga that had hardly been used before it was put back in its box. So this one, well, I probably should clean it because it's been uh, since I got it. Um, well, I did have to take it apart and replace the photo transistors for the Y axis because that wasn't working. Um, but other than that, it was literally, <laughs> no pun intended, squeaky clean um but yeah i mean the reason i love it is because that's what i originally had back in the day with my a500 as did we all so it is all about nostalgia um there but now there's a kickstarter for a modern usb based wireless version for use with modern computers and with your original amiga if you want but to do that you do have to have an adapter, you know, the, the standard um, USB to DB9 adapters, and that isn't part of the project. But you can buy those already, so why why would it be? Um, the concept images and the demo video um, show that it even, even has a scroll wheel feature, which is, of course, something that the original Tank Mouse didn't have, but it's not a wheel. It looks like it sensors under the plastic, so the original aesthetic remains completely intact. It actually looks stunning um, if you want a tank mouse, obviously. If you don't, then it looks ugly. Um, but and for the first time ever, it's a, it's a wireless tank mouse. Obviously, we've got laser um, kits that you can use to replace the ball in an original tank mouse, but we've never seen a wireless solution. So this is completely wireless and with the scroll feature as well. Um, the early bird white has sold out, and I'm pretty sure the black one has now as well. But those were just reduced prices for early bird and you can still back either of the colors at the full price of, I think it's 36 euro. So that's about 30 quid or about 40 US dollars or in Australia, a slab of VB. Um, now that I've mentioned, uh, I've mentioned before that I suffer from kickstart phobia, Neil. <laughs> I don't tend to jump <laughs> on kickstarters. Um, is this one I should back? What do you think? Well, I'm just looking it up as we talk. Uh, there's 24 days to go on this campaign. Um, the goal hasn't been hasn't been met yet. It's £65,176. Mm. I think that's translated from dollars, um, is, is the goal. It's hit £43,000 with 24 days to go. I think that's going to hit it. I think, you know, you've usually got a lull in the middle of a Kickstarter and then a big boost at the end. That tends mm. to be what happens. 
They've got 891 backers already. So I think it's fair to say this is going to be a, a successful Kickstarter. I'd start off by saying, I think, are we in danger of being a little bit too misty-eyed about this? Because hmm. my memories of the Tank Mouse are, yes, I do associate it with the look of the Amiga 500. I had plenty of them. But as soon as I could buy a replacement, as soon as I saw in the shops a more modern-looking, more ergonomic mouse, I bought it. Uh, and I didn't even think twice about swapping it out for my tank mouse. And when I played games that were two-player with mice, like Lemmings, like Settlers, Player 2 got the tank mouse. That was their disadvantage. It was like having the dodgy joypad yeah, when you played a two-player game. And, and Player 1 got the joystick and Player 2 got the old Master System joypad or whatever you shoved into your machine. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we are in danger of being a bit misty-eyed. But it is always nice to have a tank mouse next to an Amiga to complete the look. It's like what you were saying earlier about setting things to the default settings. The default is a tank mouse sat next yes. to an Amiga. Yeah. At least a certain generation of Amiga, the later ones, did replace the tank mouse with something different. But um, I guess the question is, not not only do I want this for an Amiga, do I want this for a modern machine? Because it is made to accommodate modern PCs as well, hmm. um, and Bluetooth devices. It's not ergonomic. I mean, a tank mouse is called a tank mouse for a reason. It's not going to sit in the hand nicely. It's not terrible. I've used worse mice. Uh, for example, the Puck mouse on the original iMac. That thing gave you cramp. Tank mouse isn't quite as bad as that, but I wouldn't go out of my way to want a tank mouse. Um, I think the sweet spot for me is probably pair it up with like a Checkmate case with a recreated Amiga. Maybe you've got your Pi in there. Maybe you've got uh, an A500++, the new Amiga board that you built, or a Vampire. Yeah, mm. I think that's a nice combo. Um, That'll be nice. I'd like to see how authentic it is. Maybe, a, uh, no, hang on, I'm convincing myself now. A black one next to a CDTV. Oh, nice. yes. <laughs> that would be oh, nice. Definitely. I, I, I'll have one for that. Um, I think the prices are fair considering the costs involved in the injection molding and everything like that. So um, it looks like it's a fairly balanced Kickstarter. Um, there is another option, though. Mm. Uh, it'll be with us very soon, and that's the wired a500 mini tank mouse that's coming out uh, there was such popularity for just the tank mouse when the a500 mini was announced that they are now selling that on its own just the tank mouse uh, i think i saw some pictures just this morning of the prototype i think it was uh, retro recipes i yeah. got hold of a prototype to show off on his channel recently and um people were moaning a little bit because it's very clear that that one now uh, should come as no surprise it's called the a500 mini but it is slightly smaller than the original tank mouse when it sits next to it yeah which yeah. is a bit of a shame so that might actually take it out of the running for a lot of people but yeah. we'll have to see how that pans out so it's worth looking at that as an option yeah what do you think chris yeah now going on to um perifractics the retro Rep recipes prototype it is a prototype that they sent him it's the 3d printing prototype so that does raise the question will the final version be full size i don't know or is that literally well the surely size? these things are going to be in the shops within is it a month or two now yeah, so yeah. the molds must have the molds must have been done i don't think yeah. the size is going to change yeah yeah so yeah maybe that is the size then um it didn't look that much smaller but um but yeah it's definitely smaller than the original mouse um but yeah i mean you're right about being misty eyed and that's why I said, yeah, our nostalgia, nostalgia glasses are definitely rose-tinted because when I think about it, yes, that's what the Amiga 500 originally came with, 
but you know the buttons would give up there's earlier i said the fact that it had weight to it as a as a positive whereas actually it's a heavy chunky cumbersome mouse and i don't know what it is with the cable that accompanies it but it just always catches on your desk on your monitor stand on anything <laughs> it did back in the day and it does the same now um i remember the buttons dying on my original that's what eventually led me to upgrade i thought it was a logi 3 but i think you might be right it's log- logic Three, um, so three, I'm pretty yes, sure yeah. I bought the same the same mouse because it had a switch on the bottom, didn't it, to go between Atari ST and Amiga, if I remember correctly. There was that on one of them, yeah, 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 yeah. And it, and it was definitely an upgrade. So the game that killed my original tank mouse was Captive. A lot of it's a dungeon crawler, so much clicking, uh, especially as you get into the later levels and you're getting faster and faster and faster, and it's all about clicking. Um, and it just you know those those leaf spring not leaf springs those leaf switches just gave up. Um, did you get to the point where you were where you were trying to press the left button really hard every now and then it would register a click yes other times it wouldn't that's that's the point i got to i had that on my tank mouse and also i'd broken the eject button on my disk drive so i had a teaspoon that i would i would use the end of a teaspoon to eject discs and i'd be like (laughs) slapping my tank mouse what happened to your poor amiga back in the day Neil? (laughs) well it's worth noting you were talking about the the wire getting snagged on the on the mouse but it's worth remembering the space that we had to operate these machines in usually yes. you know we had a very small desk we had a very limited amount of space just for the mouse and you know the wiring was kind of shoved down the back to try and make room for a crt to sit on top of the machine um so yeah it was important if things snagged it was a real pain yeah it definitely was and it would upset your gaming and that's the worst thing ever um but speaking of you know the upgrades that they did later let's move my spectrum out of the way because that's gonna fall off um, but I have here the the mouse that comes with the A600 and A1200. This came That's with my A1200. And that, I hate to say it, because obviously my passion really is for the A500 in the original setup. This is so much nicer to use. It's so much more responsive. It's so much lighter. It just fits in the hand better. So if, if you haven't used one before, it's just a small, it almost looks like a modern mouse sans the scroll wheel um into, and the fact that it's beige and the fact that it doesn't look modern at all but apart from that it's the sort of size and ergonomics of, of a modern mouse you, you it wouldn't look out of place if it had a laser in the bottom and it was black so yeah yeah um the tank mouse it, was it really that good i don't know um <laughs> yeah i still love it i still a, love it regardless yeah putting a laser in the bottom um is is actually an option Oh, my computer's decided it wants to install an Epson printer update. Let's do let's it. Just cancel that. <laughs> not, not a new screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you can actually do a laser conversion on a tank mouse. And I know producer Duncan, who I'm determined to get on the show one day. Duncan, you're coming on here, whether you like it or not, one day as a guest. Uh, he's actually written a really nice review of the laser upgrade that you can put into an existing tank mouse. He's got lots of photos of the installation process and he shares his thoughts on it. So, um, Duncan, if you can put a link in the show notes to your own blog, that would be really good. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you there, Chris. Carry on. No, yeah, it's all good. Um, and yeah, I mean, desk setup, uh, as you mentioned uh, just now, Neil, that what you needed was a good desk and a good mouse pad. And if you didn't have any of those, then the tank mouse just wasn't going to work for you um, with the ball. Um, so, yeah, who knows? It's an interesting idea anyway. Uh, I think it looks very nice. Um, I think the problem is if you order the black one, you're going to also order the beige one as well because you need, you need both. 
whether you like it or not, you know, we've got this tank mass now. We've had things like keycaps in the past. We've got custom chips being produced using FPGAs and things like that. We've got the A500++ for a whole new PCB. Uh, I think there have been molds for A500 cases in the past. Um, mm. we, can't, we can't be far away. We might even already be there from being able to just create an entirely new A500 from all the bits. Are we there yet? I'm not sure. Cool. Yeah, that's that's a good point. You've got the um, you can get the replacement motherboards as well as I think, can't you? Yeah, that's the A five hundred plus plus. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, Rob does. Um, so yeah, and there's also A four thousand motherboards and things like that that have been recreated. There's all sorts out there. Um, I, I've got a feeling there's still some custom chips that haven't yet been reproduced, but we've got to be pretty close now. That's what I was just thinking. You need, could you do that via FPGA where basically there's a, there's a chip that's pre-programmed to act like the original custom chip that fits in the same socket? Yeah. yeah. That would finish you, it, you wouldn't can. it? Uh, I mean, the big problem at the moment is the availability of those FPGA chips and the supply chain problems. So yeah, yeah. it might be that it's possible, but it's not really feasible price-wise, but um, it might be that it's all out there. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that'd be a good project, wouldn't it? Build... Uh, an a500 out of completely new parts because i've built the a500 plus plus but you had to have a donor board to transplant all the old custom chips into so um yeah must nearly be there and you could do it with a wireless mouse with a sensor scroll wheel so anyway look regardless <laughs> of whether or not i end up popping my kickstarter cherry on this one or not do check it out you'll tank us later our final story this week was submitted by Control Reese in an act of shameless self-promotion, which was upvoted by our subreddit. So I'm going to stamp on the screen now and hopefully producer Dunk will make a nice stamp sound effect and put a big approved stamp across the screen. You ready, Duncan? There we go. Beautiful. He'll do anything you ask him. What Reese has to show us in his video is not a rare Atari console, but just a small part of it. It's the sound module. Now, that might not sound very exciting at first, but considering there are only seven known prototypes of this console out there, it's probably fun just to own one small part of it. And uh, it's also the vehicle for a, a wider conversation about the console as, the, uh, um, as a whole, which he's put onto his channel. The console in question is the Atari Panther. Chris, have you heard of it? The Atari um, I Panther? Have. I have heard of the Atari Panther only because I watched Reese's video the other day. <laughs> ah, there you go. There you go. So um, it is apparently it's Atari's answer to the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo back in the day. And on paper, it did look like it was quite a bit more powerful than either of them. Uh, the, the Panther was cancelled, apparently. And I've got this from Reese's video also for serious technical issues. Doesn't go into any detail about what those were. But they were obviously facing issues. And also a factor of it was that the Atari Jaguar, which did come out, was also in development. So they probably thought it was uh, a bad idea to be having two competing consoles. And Atari, of course, had a cash flow problem at this time, so wanted to tighten its belt. It's hard to know exactly how powerful this thing would have been compared to the competition. There's no footage that I'm aware of of games running on it. There is an interesting article in The One magazine, which you can find in a, in a forum, um, it's from August 1991. Someone's kindly scanned it, and it features Jeff Minter, who explains that within the Panther is a chip called the Panther at its heart. So this is where it's got its name from. And that does a lot of the heavy lifting for the 2D sprite work. This wasn't aiming to be a 3D console. This is, uh, you know, pre-PlayStation days. And um, it also had a 16 megahertz 68,000 CPU. 
Now, if you just think about that compared to the Super Nintendo or the Mega Drive or even an Atari ST, you know, it's more than double the stock speed of an Atari ST, 16 megahertz. It could put 32 on-screen colors at once um, from a from a huge, I can't remember the exact number of colors. It was something like a quarter of a million colors to choose from. And um, yeah, it does claim, and we, we have no proof about this, but it does claim in the article that it can display 83,840 sprites on screen of any size with no slowdown. I mean, would you ever need more sprites than that? <laughs> it sounds, it sounds, you know, like it's almost the ultimate in 2D gaming. Um, it's got to be a yeah. competitor even for something like the Neo Geo with those kind of numbers being thrown around. From the article, um, it sounds like the game that was closest to completion was Psygnosis's Shadow of the Beast, and then the system was canned. And that's a real shame because that game in particular has been ported to so many other machines that it would have been perfect for making direct comparisons to see, is it better than the SD, the Amiga, the uh, the Mega Drive, the Super Nintendo? We could have compared it to all of those systems, the PC Engine even, uh, and, and got a real feel for its performance. So Chris, what are your thoughts? You've obviously seen the video. What do you think about this thing? Yeah, it sounds exciting. I mean, I owned a, a SNES and I, I I loved it. In fact, I'm hopefully picking up one this Friday um, with an EverDrive cartridge thing um, with it. So that'll be exciting to get back into that. And um, so I had the SNES and I respected the Mega Drive. Um, but with the SNES, I mean, it was a pretty impressive piece of kit. You, you had Mode 7 plus you had the Super FX chip on certain games. So you had good 3D capability as well. Um, but if they had something better, although, I mean, it's it's running a, okay, it's a 16 megahertz, 68,000. Um, so yes, like you said, that's twice the speed of the ST. And Reese has a sound module. Was this actually was this actually a new console or were they just, just trying to make the Atari ST sound as good as the Amiga? Um, I, won't, I won't go on on that <laughs> one. Um, but... I don't know if this was a console and it was better than the uh, the SNES and the Mega Drive. Maybe this was a missed opportunity. Maybe, maybe. Um, but it does beg the question: Could the, could Atari have just taken the ST by hmm. let's say nineteen ninety eight, nineteen eighty nine, and turned that into a console? You know, they would have been right on the cutting edge with when that sixteen bit generation of consoles came about, yeah, and true. it would have been good. It might have needed the addition of the blitter that was in the STE just to help things along a little bit. But um, I don't know. Uh, but, but saying that, there is this history of turning a micro into a games console over the years that just mm. seems to end badly every single time. There might be a good example, but if we look at things like the C64 game system, the GS, I think that came out in like 1990, uh, the GX4000 from Amstrad, terrible. Um, the Zegs or XE video game system from Atari, which was based on their 8-bit micros, although you could get a keyboard to plug into the front of it, but you could buy it just as the console. Um, every single uh, yeah example that I can think of just doesn't seem to work. And it, they always mm. seem to arrive really late. They always seem to come with an attitude, an air about it of the company just trying to rinse as much cash as possible out of old hardware instead of being innovative and gamers respect innovation you might not get it right but if you're trying to introduce something new if you're trying to give them something different and original gamers respect that but they can smell a mile off if you're just rinsing the same old bit of hardware putting it in a new case every single time whether it's yeah. the cd32 you know compared to the 1200 
the GX4000, which was like the Amstrad 128 Plus, I think it was very similar to that. Uh, I mean, what were they even thinking with the Commodore 64 GS? You know, this was an <laughs> eight-year-old micro being put into a world where the Sega Mega Drive had established itself over a couple of years already. The Super Nintendo was coming. You expect a C64 to compete with that. But saying that, an ST in 88 consolized with the Atari name on it and with Atari's arcade and gaming heritage, they might just have pulled it off. They might have done. I would have yeah. liked to have seen that, but for whatever reason, they didn't go down that road. So it's purely hypothetical. Um, but of those crap consoles that I've listed there, uh, did you own any of those? Did you ever back the wrong horse in a console race, Chris? Uh, I've not owned any of those, no. And I, I immediately started to think as you were talking there about things like the CD32 and even the CDTV, you could argue, a similar similar thing, oh, yeah, even though yeah. console wasn't exactly what they were going for, but it's that same kind of story. We've got an old chipset, let's throw it in a new case and see if we can sell it, um, which is a bit sad because, as you say, they're always late to the piece, uh, and that's not how you compete with successful consoles. Um, but, yeah, I do frequently back the wrong horse. It seems to be the thing <laughs> I do. Um, but, um, I don't know, one that springs to mind is um, the Game Gear versus the Game, Go Game Boy versus the Lynx. I had the Game Gear, and the, and the reason I had the Game Gear was because it was full color, and I thought the games were going to be better. Essentially, it could play Master System games. In fact, it could actually play Master System games through an adapter, and you could also watch TV on the damn thing. How awesome is that? But, of course, the Game Boy was the most successful because it had the battery life, and it had the, the, the correct price point and the the games were everywhere and they were simpler and they were fun and these things didn't particularly seem to be true of the game gear um and the actual technical winner was the Lynx, which essentially i always refer to it i know it's atari um but i refer to it as the Ami the handheld amiga because essentially you know that's part of the history and and, and the chipset inside that so it, i didn't buy the best technically and i didn't buy the best commercially i really did buy I backed the wrong horse, Neil. I definitely backed the, <laughs> the wrong horse. Um, and the same thing with, well, the Jaguar. So the only Atari I've ever purchased was the oh, Jaguar. <laughs> and my sister at the time, my oldest sister, she was wanting to buy a console for uh, my nephew. And she was saying, oh, what do you think of this PlayStation? And I remember saying, I remember saying, Sony make hi-fis. They know nothing about games. Buy the Atari Jaguar. Because Atari, it's pretty much the genesis of gaming. This is where it came from. They can't get it wrong. I bought myself a Jaguar. She ignored my advice and bought the PlayStation for my nephew. And, of course, he got the better machine. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Do the maths, Neil, though. Do the maths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it was a fair argument. You know, Atari, uh, it was known they were kind of struggling at that point, but... They still had the heritage. And even today, people still perhaps nostalgically attach hope to the Atari name. Mm. You know, only last week we were talking about an Atari joystick. And um, whether I don't think we'll ever see them come back into the hardware market again with an Atari name outside of nostalgic products. Um, but but yeah, I can, I can understand people making that mistake. And also, it did have some great games, like the previews for Alien vs. Predator looked pretty stunning at the time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can understand it, but, yeah, I feel your pain. Did you have it for long? Did you did you get rid of it? Uh, no, I did have it for quite a while. I mean, it was when I had um, a 386DX. Mm, was it before I bought? Yes, yeah, so I had a 386DX, which didn't play Doom particularly well. So the games that appealed to me were the fact that it had what I would consider a good port of Doom, 
Um, people have pointed out it didn't have the music. I didn't even notice because I would listen to my own music in the background anyway. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I, li- I, I enjoyed Doom on the Jaguar, and Alien vs. Predator was fine. But the more I look up, I'm, I'm tempted to get another one for the collection because I, I do have an attachment to the Jaguar. But then I look up the games, and every time I see a game demo on YouTube or whatever of a Jaguar game, they all look like games that a 16-bit system could play better. And I hate to say that, mm. but it's a, in inverted commas, 64-bit system. And here it is predominantly playing 16-bit games badly. <laughs> so I will end up yeah. buying one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you buy a Jaguar and it plays a good game of cannon fodder, but why would you want a Jaguar to play cannon fodder? Yeah. Um, and that, that was, yeah, that was lazy coding uh, on not necessarily lazy coding, lazy business decisions to quickly port games over because it happened to have a 68,000 chip in there. So people kind of tap into that and use that instead of taking full advantage of the system. Yeah. Um, it does mean, though, in modern homebrew, you get some nice ports where people are just transferring over, you know, Amiga and Atari games to it, Atari SD games to it. Anyway, how do we get onto the Jaguar, Chris? We've gone off on all sorts of tangents today. Um, on, on the GX4000 front, um, I do own one. And thanks to uh, Discord chatter, Pillock, hello, Pillock. Uh, just yesterday, he managed to get hold of a white Amstrad monitor to go with it for me. So GX4000 is, is white. It looks kind of like a Stingray design. Uh, and I'll have the Amstrad branded white monitor to sit behind it. And I will set it up here and I will make people play on it. <laughs> <laughs> I will make them play on it. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. There's something about the GX4000. I know it's completely terrible, but I can't explain it. I, I think perhaps because it's been bullied for so many decades, including by me, uh, I now just want to kind of give it a sanctuary. I, w- I, I feel sorry for it in a way. The the only other system I think uh, I don't know I've got I've got a Philips G seven thousand. Are you familiar with those, Neil? Philips G seven thousand, um, which is the Odyssey the two Intelli- essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Odyssey. That, let's say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a broken one here, but I've, I've, uh, I've not felt inclined to get it working just yet. I'm not feeling a, a real drive to make it work because I've not seen anything that makes me want to play it. Um, I, do, <laughs> I do need to save it at some point, but I don't yeah. have the same sympathy for that as I do for the GX4000. Is yeah. it worth it? Oddly, well, my my G seven thousand is also not working. Funnily enough, do, I assume is yours giving you sound and no video? Is that what yours is doing, or have you not really tested it's, it? Uh, no sound, no video, just nothing out of my. Oh, no sound, no. Okay, it's worse than mine. I've got, I've at least got sound. Um, so I'm hoping it's the PAL encoder chip that's died, so you can bypass it by doing an RGB mod. So I've bought all the components, but I just haven't got around to doing it. But I, I actually love that system. So talking about underdog systems. Um, I would consider that one because really it's in that period where you had an Atari and if you asked for a console for Christmas, you asked for an Atari, you didn't even use the word console. Um, And this came out around that same period. I think the Odyssey 2 was more popular in the States, but in the UK, the Philips G7000 was what you got if your parents went to the shops to buy an Atari and they were out of stock, (laughs) you know, or if they didn't know (laughs) what they were buying. But I love it because it was the first system our family had. And there's a game on it called Munchkin, which is a Pac-Man clone but the dots move as well as the ghosts so and they the the less dots that are left to find in the maze the faster they go so you end up at the end of a level (laughs) chasing the dots and trying to catch up literally trying to corner the dots so that you can eat them at the same time as trying to escape the ghosts it's a fantastic game i absolutely love it and you could program your own mazes so yeah that sounds fun yeah really cool so there you go there's incentive to get your your underjog philips g7000 
Relling. Yeah. One day, one day. Well, if you'd f- like to find out more about the Atari Panther uh, and Reese's take on it and, and see his rare prototype um, audio board that he's got for it, do check out the link in the show notes to Reese's video and go and educate yourself. So on now to our community question of the week and your answers from last week's question. The question was, did you aspire to be a game developer? How far did you get? Did you play with things like shoot 'em up construction kit or Amos? Or did you hard code it to the metal? Did you get all the way to publishing a game? And what was that experience like? Would you recommend it? Do you have any tips to pass on to those looking to get into game development? All of that good game development stuff. So, uh, when we come to the answers, we've got, we'll read our three top ones as well, but there's a couple of really interesting answers buried away in the subreddit this week, which we'll also, um, we'll also pick out. Chris, do you want to read the top answer from last week? Yep. So from Kozam99, um, he says, yes, I wrote, because initially we asked if we'd, they'd written a low-level operating system as a joke, Neil. And he oh, says, yes. he actually says, yeah, I wrote a low-level disk operating system <laughs> in assembly, whether he's being a smartass. <laughs> for the ZX80-based computer of my own design a while back. Sorry, Chris, no chipset as such, just a bunch of blue logic and a cobbled-together IDE interface. But on to the actual question. So now, what games development has he done? Every computer I had back in the day, I started writing games for. But to date, I don't believe I finished a single one, a tradition I carry on to this day. Whether it was basic on a Speccy or 464 or later Amos on the Amiga, I get an idea, make a bunch of graphics, love a bit of pixel artistry, get something moving on the screen before losing interest and moving on to the next exciting but ultimately doomed project. So my number one tip for any budding lone developer would be not to bite off more than you can chew. Keep it simple and you might just see it through to a finished project or product. And no, it's never too late to learn. It's never too late. Uh, Richard Shears, number, answer number two, says, Starting with the humble VIC-20, I attempted to write a game. The first attempt was very much like R.I.P., with the second attempt being a Salamander-style side-scrolling shooter, but without the side-scrolling. All the graphics. <laughs> Moving on up to the Amstrad, I wrote a bad gauntlet clone in BASIC, along with a few other attempts, but my most successful program I wrote on that platform was a graphics editor, although it was only for my own use. And then came the Amiga, whereby I attempted to write machine code, code failed miserably, and fell back to having a lot of fun with shoot 'em up construction kit. My friends even enjoyed playing them for all of about five minutes, which was a success in my eyes. He then moved on to GFA Basic, where he wrote other things for fun, um, including, uh, what does he say he wrote here? What, uh, a simple app. So he's moved from games to apps that on lunch asked you for a name, created a draw or, or a directory with an icon, um is that it is that what it did yeah if you remember as far back as workbench 1.2 you didn't have an option to sim- simply create a directory oh i see H- hence the often pondered empty drawer that you were supposed to copy and rename oh, okay so he wrote an app that could actually create a new directory i mean sounds mad but <laughs> very useful <laughs> at the same time he says am i a successful games developer no but i am what others consider to be a successful software developer and I owe this to those tentative steps at creation of creation at a very early age. So a, a success story of sorts, I would say there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And now I know what the empty drawer was for. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. So the next one's, I like this guy's name. I got zero budget. Know how you feel, mate. So... <laughs> 
I certainly have always wanted to be a games dev. I toyed with various flavors of BASIC from BBC and C64 through to GW BASIC on PC and even Dark BASIC at one point. Whilst not a game, I did successfully write a lottery syndicate number checker, which worked very uh, pretty well. Obviously, didn't te- um, trust the syndicates he was in, Neil. Um, <laughs> I One remember- of the first programs I wrote uh, in, in Pascal when I was learning that was um, a lottery draw uh, program. So you'd pick your numbers and then you'd press the button and you'd wait for it to draw and it would draw until it picked your six numbers and told you'd won the lottery. Oh, fantastic. And I was never... I was never quite sure if the program was working or if the odds were just that bad, no matter how fast I ran this thing, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of times, it just taught me the lottery is probably a waste of money. You're not going to win it because my numbers never came up. Takes that long. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, he goes on to say, uh, being very inspired by the public domain games mate had on his Amiga, which led to us having a tiny two man game jam one weekend using Amos on his A500. We gave each other an hour to make a little game for the other to play. Needless to say, both were terribly unplayable, but it was tremendous fun. We did the same with Shoot 'em Up Construction Kit too. He's got a lot in this answer. It's definitely worth having a look and uh, reading. He goes on to talk about using click and play, um, doing stuff in HTML, doing some Xbox stuff, or having a look at making some Xbox stuff in Xbox XNA, um, and also Game Maker and RPG Maker. So lots of interesting stuff in that reply. Do take a look. So a couple of the um, other ones which are buried down in the answers here, which just stand out a little bit, are um, the first one was from Dom Ramsey, who talks about Amos on the Amiga. Um, he, he got hold of Amos, used it to write some simple games. But um, a lot later, uh, he wrote some demos which were then included in, you'll remember you had Amos Professional and Easy Amos was another version that came out later. Well, some of his demos were included in the release of Easy Amos as those demos that you could load up and and read through to learn how to use the thing. And he says, there's something immensely satisfying about walking into a shop and seeing something that you've helped make for sale on the shelves. And you found another answer, didn't you, Chris? So yeah, this is a this is a really nice little story. So he said he was about ten or eleven years old um, and uh, and aspired to be a games developer, as did we all. Uh, and he basically scribbled a simple basic program into a notepad. Um, I don't know how he checked that it was working. I assume he must have also typed it in. Uh, but he wrote it down in a notepad and it says randomly one day he just tore the page out and put it in an envelope. And without any other context in it, just shoved this page in an envelope, sent it to a gaming magazine. And he said, basically, the code was a nonsensical um, but quite linear Empire Strikes Back game. Um, and the next month, sure enough, in the gaming magazine, they published his full code uh, on their mailbox page with the commentary, we tried it, it works, although it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. He says, in a way, I've had my game published. <laughs> he has, he has. You know, there are plenty of developers who started out with their games being published as, as typing listings. So yeah. you, know, you were on the first step of the game development ladder. So um, a question for next week then. Uh, look look out in our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you can uh, go and answer this question. Um, I think we should have a question on the ZX Spectrum, Chris. What do you think? Oh, sounds good. Should we yes. go for that? So just, I think just simply ZX Spectrum memories. Did you buy one when it was launched? Were you late to the party? 
what are your memories of the ZX Spectrum? What did you do with it? Were you the envy of your friends or were you secretly jealous of your C64 owning friends? Does the battle still rage on or have you, like us, uh, found a respect for both of those machines? But um, yeah, ZX Spectrum, anything and everything about the ZX Spectrum. Let's just have a, a ZX Spectrum loving, I think, Chris. Cool. Yeah, sounds exciting. Excellent. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you in the next show. Bye-bye. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RMC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.